Hi, I'm Hima Batavia, and welcome to Artist Care, a series presented by Newest Magazine. At Newest, we are observing the shifting cultural landscape in Canada. We delve into critical perspectives of our national identity, celebrate Canada's art scene, host honest conversations about its complex challenges, and share ideas to help shape the future of our diverse society. Our hope is that in bringing forward new changemakers, thoughts, and ideas, our stories will influence the global community to coexist in love and harmony. Artist Care is a series that started as a question during the pandemic, a period when the praxis of care became an act and conversation point for resistance against the oppressive and inequitable systems that continue to be unveiled. Artist Care asks, what does it mean to look at care from the artist's perspective? What is it to understand how to care for a practice and body of work rooted in cultural visions for a possible future? How are artists caring for themselves? How are they being cared for? How are they offering care to their land and communities given the often precarious nature of an artist's work? If we count upon artists to bring the visual and narrative vision to possible futures, how might we, our systems and institutions, better care for them? Each episode of Artist Care features a conversation with an artist recorded in a place in the natural world where they feel held and cared for. They share various dimensions of care and a ritual that they use to care for themselves. In this second episode, I take a walk with Queen Kokoyi, whose Afrofuturist practice weaves threads and mediums together to connect the ancestral, spiritual, scientific, and psychological into new frames of being and seeing. Ritual is foundational to their work, bringing in the earth as a collaborator in the creative process. They are refreshingly honest about their lived experiences, balancing the humor with the real, leading us to understand how they must care for themselves to create what they create. Here is the episode for the Imaginarium. So tell me a little bit about where are we? and what this place means to you. Hi everyone, I'm Queen Kukoi. We're by the waterfront, uh, looking at the uncleanest part of Lake Ontario. But I love being by the water. Water spirits and water deities and being connected to the water just gives me like this fullness. My work is a meta-analytical Afrofuturistic convergence of like meditation, music, art, and noetic science. I use a lot of water in my ritual rituals and so when I got the opportunity to live near here like it was just it felt very synergistic I really wanted to just come out to my backyard so to speak and just really look at the water and feel the breeze washing over the water while it washes over me so I honor today and every day the indigenous nations of Toronto including the Mississauga of the credit the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. And it's now home to many diverse nations, Inuit people, Métis people. I also want to acknowledge that this land is covered by the 
Treaty 13 signed with Mississauga New Credit and the Williams Treaty signed with multiple Mississauga and Chippewa bands. And on this land, I live with great gratitude and acknowledgement of the genocide and continuous displacement of indigenous people. I also would like to acknowledge my African ancestors who lived and worked on this land and many lands to build these lands up in a colonial setting, in a colonial era, on stolen land. I also want to acknowledge my Igbo and Lakono ancestral seed here in this space. Yeah, so ritual for me is so important in my healing and abundance work, and I like to use typically the water or liquor and a form of sage that's connected to my lineage. So here I have a Yerba Santa bundle that was made for me, and I like to burn it to cleanse the energy. Um, sometimes uh, when I'm doing my ancestral work, you know, I pour a little look out for my ancestors, you know, as a form to purify um, the area of my altar but also as a way um, for protection. And sometimes if I feel called to, I'll swish the liquor around in my mouth and spit it into the air as a way to spread the abundance. <laughs> I do many different things depending on the day and what my body and my ancestors tell me I need to do for that day for the abundance work that needs to be done or for the healing work that needs to be done. But here today, I'm going to do um, some more mindfulness and purification stuff with, you know, the Yerba Santa and some white liquor <laughs> for the ancestors. <laughs> definition of care? My definition of care changes depending on what I need in the moment and I think the hugest part of that is understanding that it's okay for it to change from moment to moment. Just having people ask me questions like what do you need right now because it's not always advice. Sometimes I just want you to listen. Sometimes I just want food. <laughs> sometimes I want to be held. And also understanding that sometimes you may not know and you just need the person to just sit near you. When people start asking you what you need, it actually helps you start to connect with that need part of yourself. Like I remember I had a therapy session and my therapist was like, you know, your needs are holy. I'm like, are they? <laughs> Like, I was, like, so confused. I'm like, are they? But then oh, I've just been sitting with that for years. Like, these needs are sacred. Like, and you have to hold the sacred space around it. Um, but first, you have to understand that you have needs and then sort of, like, move from there. So I really love that actually we can support each other in getting better at um, identifying what our needs are. Even the ability to just ask someone that question instead of automatically defaulting to advice because I think a lot of us especially folks who've experienced trauma it's like oh I went through this this is what I did and it's not always like a one size fits all solution and sometimes just listening is the most important part of what the person might need in the moment 
who cares for you and how do they do that? I would say my business partner, Nico, cares for me. We're like a artist collaboration. And I feel like working with her, even in times of like turmoil, when it's like, wow, like we should be like biting each other's heads off, but we're really just being mindful and caring for each other for the most part, even when, you know, we may not necessarily have the space to do it for ourselves, the fact that we can do it for each other. And then my daughter cares for me. She's been the longest <laughs> caring for me. Like I'm also constantly learning from her as well how to parent her. So she kind of parents me into how I can best <laughs> parent her. She's just so kind and caring for the most part. I mean, she's a teenager. She has her moments. But for the most part, she's, she's a very caring and kind child. And then I have to big up my partner who also cares for me as well. So I have a diagnosis. I was diagnosed in 2019 with bipolar 2. She shows up for me by letting me rest, um, feeding me, because I often forget um, to eat. Living with someone who has trauma is one thing, but living with someone who also has like a mental, what I call a mental uniqueness. While it's also painful to go through, it's also my superpower, I like to say. It can't be easy because I do have like these highs and lows and bipolar 2, hypomania and uh, depression. But I like to say highs and lows. I guess I kind of like sounds prettier <laughs> to me, but they're really like how I feel. I feel like super like, yay, the world is fantastic. I can get a million things done. And then when I experience a little, I'm like, oh, too many things, <laughs> too many, just want to sleep. <laughs> and then I just rest <laughs> in those moments as well, too. But like, there's this guilt, too, that comes with resting. And I just, I think that has a lot to do with capitalism and colonialism, though, and less to do with me. So the guilt dissipates once I <laughs> like put that in my mind. It's like sleep, sleep, bitch. You can sleep. It's okay to rest. I, I can relate to the highs and lows um, based on my own mental uniqueness. I'm obsessed with that term. Thank you for introducing it to me. So I'm curious how, after you were diagnosed, how did it change how you cared for yourself? Or if you were going to define care, how has your definition changed over time? At first, and it's wild because like I'm a mental health advocate justice advocate etc cetera, etc cetera. how like I perceived myself after my diagnosis like every negative thought about mental health I imposed on myself even though I would never let anyone else impose it on themselves and I was like wait no no we're not doing that because you're spiraling which is a part of your mental health <laughs> yay now you know why this is happening <laughs> You can kind of like measure now when it's getting bad and when you need to eat and when you need to rest and when you're doing too much. Things that are going wrong are lessons, you know, and thinking about, okay, what is this trying to teach me right now? Is it teaching me something as simple as like, you need to slow down, you're doing too much, you need to breathe, you need to focus on like where your feet are planted, how the air smells because things are moving too fast for you. So that's why you're experiencing this feeling in your body or these thoughts at the current moment. Or like, where are they coming from? Is it coming from like a previous trauma? And 
while like it's a superpower that's also exhausting hence why you know the rest for two days <laughs> because your mind's just going um I think like one of the clinical terms or not even a clinical term but like a term they used in like my psychology class was like monkey chatter it's like no, like your brain's like just constantly active just trying to find a way to balance that and like food is like a huge part of that like healthy food eating healthy and nurturing your body in that way is like a huge part of um managing bipolar too and i also recognizing like in a colonial setting encompassing like mental health why there's guilt there when it comes to resting why your body feels like you need to be doing so much because as black person as an indigenous person as a person of color like we're constantly perceived as like lazy so we (laughs) go over and above and often have to to not be perceived in that way i'm learning you know that rest is okay and the people that are viewing you as lazy or a particular way because of your identity like don't have to live in your body (laughs) they don't have to live in your body and they are not going to rest for you you need to take up that space for yourself how were you cared for as a child or what did care look like when you were in your younger days i grew up with a really really strict Caribbean mom, single mom, who also was abused herself, whose mother was also abused, whose mother was also abused. How I view her care for me now that I'm doing healing work looks very different. So I'll give you two answers. How I viewed her caring for me before was so steeped in trauma, almost like hatred for my mother because I felt like she ruined my childhood (laughs) in a lot of way by like adultifying me. But now recognizing, you know, the setting that she was raised in and her mother's mother and her mother's mother and how that's all rooted in white supremacy and how in the Caribbean context, there's so much more work to do even with it all being black folks. not necessarily experiencing racism the same way that we do in North America. Understanding that, you know, while she essentially like re-traumatized me from the trauma she experienced, realizing care for her looked that way because that's how she was taught to care for me. And she saw that in her own way as love, even though I recognize it not necessarily as love. And now that I'm like, having play like with my inner child and like loving my inner child and experiencing my inner child with my mother and my mother healing her inner child too. Um, Childhood currently looks different for me because I'm re-experiencing my childhood with my mother and that's been beautiful to watch especially through the eyes of like my daughter and how she sees the world and how she experiences or has experienced her childhood with my mother and getting to see my mother in a way where you know she's gotten to do some work and what kind of parent she would have been to me had she had recognized these things in herself earlier on and being able to parent in that way for my daughter so yeah sounds like some kind of chain is being broken um and that makes me like so happy for you and for for the entire lineage you know because i think at least one belief system in in indigenous communities is seven generations 
both way. The healing goes seven generations up, seven generations down. It like ripples, right? And you can feel like it's so powerful. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit um, and ask you a little bit about what is your artistic practice? How did it come to be and how has it changed over time? I am a mindfulness Afrofuturist artist. I have like this sort of meta-analytical work that encompasses like poetry and music and sound and narratives, primarily through digital art. But I've done it like installation work in film and now exploring what I used to call doodles. And now I know, you know, I'm channeling my ancestors with these Afro-Indigenous, Caribbean-Indigenous tribal markings in Igbo culture. They're called ule, which are like these fractal patternings in like sacred geometry that it like encompasses like natural things you see around yourself. And it's become like this very spiritual practice. One of the things I learned about bipolar too, and, and also being like a neurodivergent person, is that like it has always been a form of stimming to help me concentrate. And so now leaning into that more as like a meditative and mindfulness practice, I guess the Eurocentric term for it is Zentangle art. Um, it's these patternings, sometimes repetitive patternings that's created um, to create like an artistic piece. But they're very like intricate patterning oftentimes that you're doing for hours on end. Like there was one piece it took me like eight hours to complete just because there were so many small patternings and patternings within the patternings that I felt compelled to draw. And sometimes, you know, uh, with this new practice, like I'll often look up like art in a cultural context, like Igbo arts or Lakono um, ancestral arts. And sometimes I look it up after I've created a piece and I'll find myself in my ancestors' work. And it's so cool to like see that I'm constantly channeling them. And it's become sort of like a healing practice as well too. Like I love incorporating tech into things that I do. Um, so now I've figured out a way to like incorporate augmented reality into the pieces. So I'm super excited to like launch these pieces. And I'm so glad that I took my time because I know, think as artists, we're like, we gotta put out this work. We gotta put out this work. And feeling like, okay, like I'm gonna create 10 pieces and I'm gonna put them out. And then I'm like, wait a minute, like, let me just listen to the ebbs and flows of my body, of my ancestors. My body was like, if you're feeling anxiety about releasing these pieces, they're not ready to be released. And like you're putting too much pressure on yourself to have like final products ready for consumption and for purchase. And while I, you know, a lot of artists or most artists want to make money off of their labor, also recognizing that my art originally started for me and it still has to be that. Like it has to be for me the best possible thing I'll put out is when my body tells me it's ready. That's when the ancestors will be like, it's ready, my child. <laughs> and then you just release it. I don't know if y'all heard, you know, the whisper, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? Wait, one more time. Do the whisper one more time. 
it's ready, my child. <laughs> I'm so happy that I didn't put it out because now that I've come to like this part where I can incorporate AR, I'm like, it just adds a new layer to the piece because I'm like, I'm a digital artist primarily and all of my art usually has like some sort of movement or sound to it. And I'm like, while I can hear the sounds and the experiences in these pieces through like the colors and the flow of the patterning, like, will other people hear it? And I felt like that was translatable very much so in the digital art, but now I figured out a way to, to meld the two. So <laughs> I'm still, <laughs> I'm excited to like show that part and how I've been able to like incorporate the two practices together. I love how you draw this connection between your mental uniqueness and a practice that sort of supports that, which is called stimming, but then also this channeling and this like homage plus like this thing that's like in you, but then also bringing it into kind of this moment, which for you looks like digital art and tech and just like in one school of thought, it can be thought of as a mindfulness technique. And then in another school, it can be looked at as these symbols from that are just like inside of you and that the way that you see the world and how then you can translate it into these like ancestral symbols. It's just like, it's so, it's just so fascinating. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what is Afrofuturism to you and why is it important to bring care to artistic work that is exploring Afrofuturism? So Afrofuturism is a visual aesthetic, um, an important Pan-African movement and philosophy that encompasses like art, literature, you know, it adds in like science fiction themes. It incorporates elements of like black history, black culture and technology. I practice or my belief leans more towards, I guess, Afrofuturism 2.0, which is like an early 21st century technogenesis um, with transdisciplinary applications. And it was first noted by Dr. Ronaldo Anderson. For me, Afrofuturism, it empowers like my black story, my experience, my queerness, my joy, and allows me to place myself uh, not only in the past and the present, but also like in the future. And I can kind of like see how I could experience the world in a setting that's like untouched by colonialism and creates a space for like healing and joy and hope and my identity. And it allows my blackness to like serve in like this space of like always belonging. Um, how do you think about care in exploring Afrofuturism and why does Afrofuturism necessitate care? I think that it's important because you're able to counterhack these narratives that are like imposed and also like self-opposed on black, indigenous and people of color um, with Afrofuturism or any sort of futurism because all futurisms tend to stem from Afrofuturism as a praxis. You're able to see yourself in the future despite what the world tells you you're you are now it's this ability to dispel these negative narratives and to begin to view yourself and the people around you and the experiences very differently in the future some people may view like afrofuturism as like this utopic setting but it's not. Sometimes it, it, it is a very dystopic setting because we also recognize how the past influences the future, right? 
to be cared for right now? And what does that look like for you? I want to be like listened to. I want to be believed. I find in my black femininity and my black queerness as like a femme presenting person who also like identifies as being gender fluid my queerness becomes invisible my gender becomes invisible even like if I wear like a pronoun pin people still will defer to like she which I don't necessarily mind that pronoun but my prefer they and I've been becoming more accepting an acknowledgement of my love for my pronoun they Attaching she is like a default to like not arguing with people about my pronouns. But as I'm coming more into the fullness of myself, I'm like, hey, no, like I would actually prefer they them pronouns. I mean, she's okay, but they them is my preference, you know. And there's something so powerful in claiming that and feeling empowered by claiming that, especially in spaces where you can tell people are <laughs> visibly like homophobic. I often fear being the fullness of myself in those spaces but I'm reclaiming my space by like correcting people even though you know there's some still some fear that lives in my body around those things there's still like a lot of lived colonialism and black bodies that we're working on I feel like I'm still working on learning and unlearning a lot of things if you know you're in a situation where somebody doesn't use your pronouns how do you broach that or what language do you do to correct or now i don't know i just like as much as they ignore the pronoun in some settings like i'll just be like they them Aww. they them <laughs> like every time they say she her because like being gender fluid is super complex i also understand like the nuances of people like unlearning gender presenting pronouns and and naming people i've done it myself but i think like claiming it for me right now is enough in a society that constantly <laughs> erases my identity. As a futurist, I'm hoping, you know, over time, people will begin to decolonize their mind and their ideals of gender identity and those type of things and the expectations or lack thereof of being black and femme presenting. I just think about like, how do I want to experience this place separate from trauma that might show up in my body when people don't recognize me or don't want to recognize me. Sometimes I just have to pick my battles because like a lot of us are tired and sometimes it's okay to just be tired and that I don't always have to be like this rebel revolutionary person that's constantly like trying to educate. It's exhausting and sometimes I just want to live in my body and, and live in a joy space even if it's just only immediately like surrounding me. That's what I have to do in some of these spaces, unfortunately but fortunately. care for and how do you do that the risk of sounding like a lot I feel like I'm caring for everybody but like have learned when I don't need to take care of everybody I feel like this huge responsibility in somebody who's you know lived many different lives like I've gone from being 
labeled and perceived as like a troubled kid to like falling into that narrative and being like, well, everyone thinks this about me. So, you know, I might as well sell drugs. I might as well dance. I should dance. And understanding that those things are a part of me that should be celebrated as well and reclaiming them with new like narratives and understanding that like my story in itself can help people that I don't have to do like extra labor to take care of everybody around me and setting like boundaries for what that care can look like and when it might be too much and when I'm offering too much of myself to the people around me to the people who aren't even close to me that I'll be like okay I'll help you I'll look for a million resources for you even though like I'm in crisis at this moment but I need a distraction which I find like a lot of us do as like empaths we we want so badly to to help everybody around us because it also like feels good to do it right especially when you're in crisis it feels good to help other people because I think part of you hopes someone else would do it for you but then you also like low-key never tell anybody <laughs> what's going on and people are like what really like you were homeless for a year I never knew <laughs> like yeah <laughs> well <laughs> you know I've learned now by take care of myself I can it also helps me to take care of everybody around me project or a piece that you've worked on that's taught you or pushed you about practicing new conceptions of care? So I have an accidental film that like taught me so much about how we can begin to care for ourselves and others and it's called Black Women with an X and it was meant to just be like a meditative piece through like dialogue I was having with friends and then I decided to like I should formulate questions and I made it like a little bit more formal and then I took pictures of them in a natural setting and turned them into like mythological beings with like their third eye opening and so I had a friend uh shout out to Logic um support me with the audio for it and I really wanted to create like this altar for like black womanhood so it was me as a non-binary person a cis het woman and a trans woman all sharing space and dialogue with each other and talking about like what does safety mean to us what does black womanhood mean to us and I think that that right now until I release the other stuff <laughs> is like my favorite piece because people seen it in so many different ways and it became like this mindfulness space for them it taught me that care looks different for everyone safety looks different for everyone and how to take care of yourself in order to feel safe uh looks different for everyone and that when people speak about the care that they need that we should believe them and not impose what we believe they need because oftentimes we we already know it already lives in our body just society has taught us not to listen to our bodies you're reading Adrienne Marie Brown right now, Emergent Strategies. What is it teaching you about care? 
it's teaching me that all the healing work and the abundance work that I'm doing and the spell work that I'm doing is rooted in truth. And because of how society talks about like spell work, voodoo, hoodoo, and various other practices outside of um, an Afro-diasporic setting, how like it's demonized and that comes from colonialism and by us harnessing our spirituality there's so much power in those things and through this book I've learned that leading with love isn't necessarily like rooted in idealism but it can be rooted in truth as well like it is possible to leave with love even if other people's intention are rooted in harm like you don't have to constant be living in this protective space. So during the pandemic, there was a lot of conversation around care and around how care can be the antidote or the solution to what we were seeing and experiencing more viscerally. So racial uprising, inequity, you know, all these things have been happening for as long as colonialism exists. But the pandemic was one of those moments where it gave people the time and space to really look at it or certain people the time and space to really look at it. And there was so much conversation around care. And I, and I'm wondering how do you think about care as a method of resistance and reimagination or how can it be a method of resistance and reimagination? Care is an act of resistance. Sleep is an act of resistance. (laughs) Like, All of it is an act of resistance in the lived body of BIPOC folks because society tells us that care and rest is like associated with like laziness and it's really not it's it's a part of a practice we need to embed in everything that we do and slowing down is also like a rebellious act and saying no at work. to things that you feel like uncomfortable with is a rebellious act um i feel like everything bipoc folks do is politicized from rest to our skin tone to our hair textures and i think one of the most important things i learned about care in the pandemic is that i really needed it and it forced me to slow down and see that the way I was living before wasn't serving me. And also recognizing the moments when I begin to do it again, because nobody's perfect. Sometimes we go back to old things that are familiar to ourselves and coming to a space where it's like, it's okay that you return there, but now what are you doing tomorrow to take care of yourself? Why do you think artists should talk about care? And are you finding that they are? in your communities in my little bubble (laughs) artists are talking about it but like in the wider scope of care um i don't think artists are talking about it um in spaces like you've created here and the calls i get to have these discussions i feel like the conversations are being had but i also recognize like it's a small part of us that are realizing these things and affirming these things and having these really open discussions around like mental health and being able to slow down and being able to like do healing work to do decolonial work as an act of like resistance but also like rest resting is like decolonial practice um yeah I feel like 
it's it's almost a double-edged sword for me because the people I keep around me, like the family, the roots I've laid, the interconnectedness I have with people around me, we're having those conversations. So like in my world, in my bubble, I'm like, yeah, like we're all healing. We're all doing decolonial work. And then I go out into the real world and like experience like, racism and like homophobia and I'm like oh yeah <laughs> it's still out here it's still rampant shit <laughs> this damn bubble sometimes is not always like working in service to like my healing because then you end up like re-traumatized after keeping yourself in these safe places for so long and what about like artistic institutions in Toronto or Canada what does it mean to be in a caring relationship with them if at all if you've experienced that in a collaboration or what would be your message I honestly have been very fortunate in my artistic practice to have partnered with like these very white previously unaccessible artistic institutions that were actually like super intentional and wanting to like shift like their understanding of what BIPOC people actually need and actually integrating it, not only into like future residencies, but also like in their own policy. So for instance, um, Nico and I had a um, artist residency. We were the inaugural artist in residence for the waterfront. We were not only able to create art for the space that created like these meditative and healing spaces for black folks to come to in like typical spaces where we didn't feel like we belonged or we, we didn't visibly see ourselves, but also watching like the waterfront and Toronto Waterfront BIA integrate what we learned and conversations we had into like policy and future thinking about the waterfront that encompasses like the stories of black and indigenous folks and creating more spaces for black and indigenous folks and I mean I feel like in some ways they were kind of already doing that but over the pandemic it allowed them to slow down and really think more intentionally about how they can create more affordable spaces down here and I mean, not to say that it's perfect and I'm sure it's with its challenges because the folks who are like opening these doors for us and like allowing us to walk through and not telling us what to do once we get there, they're also combated with resistance as well too. But just having them there and knowing that we can call them to be like, we have a barrier here, help us remove it. And they're like actually like physically down to do that is transformative. But I also, like outside of my bubble, realizing that there's a lot more work to do. There's small semblances of it beginning through dialogue and some changes in institutional policies and not just like black squares on Instagram being put up. I think the other spaces need to come to the space to believe black and indigenous folks and stories and what we're telling you we've experienced and just change your shit. Become the person who's willing to risk their job to make changes within your institutions because you're gonna be met with resistance in your institution but in your whiteness you are protected we're not so be a shield
Thank you for listening. This episode is produced by myself, Hema Batavia, edited by Trisha Gregorio, presented to you by Newest Magazine, and generously supported by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. The guest in this episode is artist Queen Kukoi. You can find photos from behind the scenes of shooting this episode and from Queen Kukoi's practice on newest.co. Stay tuned for our next episode in Issue 7. How did this conversation feel for you? I don't want to leave, <laughs> but I got to go right now. I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. It was really dope. It felt really good. It felt really empowering. It felt like healing work. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm coming more into like myself now that like I'm thinking less about what I said because it's honest before I'm like, okay, I hope I didn't say nothing fucked up or too controversial that it's going to get me in trouble. But now I'm just like, man, if people don't want to hire me after I've said something, fidem problem dot because what I said was rooted in my truth and, and my current situation. And wherever there's room to change in the future, it will unveil itself to me. And I'll put that into practice as well, too, because tomorrow's a new day.